We want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're getting close to the end of our study through 1 Timothy just this week and next week. So if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I just want to read the first two verses of 1 Timothy 6. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10, but I want to read the first two verses, and I think after I do so and pray, you'll understand why. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching will not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And Father, again, we pray you bless your word to us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Transform us as you speak to us. We thank you your word is a working word. Work in us through it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that's interesting about the New Testament, looking looking at who Jesus is, looking at what Jesus taught, is that Jesus didn't call his followers to fight injustice. I don't know if you realize that or not, but he didn't do that. He didn't call them to fight injustice. What he did was empower them to live lives that transcend transcend injustice because he's promised to one day rid all the world of injustice. And this is why we see things like this in the New Testament where slavery is brought up and yet it's not just doesn't seem to be just kind of condemned to get rid of this. This is bad. This is an injustice. And there's a few things we have to understand about Roman slavery that are important for the context, okay? One, Roman slavery, the slavery that Paul's writing about here, is not the same as the Atlantic slave trade or modern human trafficking. Okay, this is what we usually think of when we think of slavery. We think of uh, slaves being stolen from Africa and sold to benefit the West. A horrible, heinous, damnable crime. Or we think of the modern human trafficking movement where, where children, especially women and children, are taken throughout the, the, the world, for, especially from poorer countries, to then work for richer countries or being brought into the sex trade. And the Bible actually soundly condemns, the New Testament soundly condemns human trafficking. We saw this a little bit earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We see it also in, in Revelation chapter 18 when this kind of last world, this last kind of worldly government is seen. And one of the things that's falling apart is their slave trade and they're horrified by it. God condemns it. But in in Roman slavery, slaves were generally permitted to work for pay and, if possible, buy their freedom. In fact, it's interesting, the gospel so radically changed the way uh, slaves and masters interacted with each other in the Roman Empire. It wouldn't be uncommon for a, a, a slave to be an elder at a church where a master went. So though, though, though he's, uh, he's a slave during the week, you might say, uh, when it comes to spiritual matters, he has the authority. This, this was a radical sort of turning around of things in the Roman Empire. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if slaves can get their freedom, they should do it. They're encouraged to get their freedom. Now, I, I say all these things not to minimize the remaining injustices of Roman slavery. There were many injustices in Roman slavery. Just like, listen, there are many injustices in all parts of the world 
when it comes to areas of work. There's still a lot of problems. We still have corporations that take advantage uh, of, of the worker. So there's lots of injustices still there. But I'm bringing these issues about uh, Roman slavery because I, we're not going to talk about slavery per se today. We're not going to talk about human trafficking. We're going to talk about work. Because I think that the, the context here is more applicable to us in a modern case in, in areas of work and the injustices and things that we deal with work than it is about slavery, really. So let's talk a little bit about work. Some statistics about our working lives. The average Brit has six jobs in their lifetimes. Six. In your groups in a minute, you'll talk about how many you've had so far. Uh, according to, to the Independent in January of, of this year, uh, it, it wrote this, the UK workforce is in crisis with more than half considering finding a new job this year and two-thirds dreading returning to work after a weekend break. It'd be interesting to see what those same people would say now after COVID. The average UK full-time worker tallies 38 to 42 hours per week, making it the single greatest use of our waking hours. Now, in a COVID world, we're seeing more people work from home. We'll see if that continues or doesn't continue. But the truth is, we will, for the foreseeable future, spend the bulk of our waking hours working. Does the gospel have anything to say about that? Does Jesus have anything to say about how we spend our working hours? This is what we're going to talk about this week. So what I want to do is I want to kind of give you three things from this text about what we're going to call a godly work ethic. We've seen this word godliness happen, come up over and over again in the book of 1 Timothy. This word godliness, this devotion to God that Jesus modeled and actually purchased for us. And that word godliness, is, it's one of the, Paul's favorite words in his letter to Timothy, and it's used four times in the section we're going to look at today. So we're going to talk about this priority of a godly work ethic. Because if you remember, in the series through 1 Timothy, we've been talking about the priorities of a local church. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, what does work have to do with local church? You just said, John, that we spend 38 plus hours working. And we only spend a couple hours at church, even if we show up nowadays. So, so how does that work? Well, because we are the local church, whether we're gathered together or spread out. The church is who we are, not just what we do. And so having a godly work ethic is crucially important. So let's talk about this. We just read these two, first two verses, right? Paul says really clear, he says, Bond servants, regard your masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, the indication here seems to be he's talking about uh, believing slaves or bondservants who had unbelieving masters. And what he wants them to do is he wants them to say, look, a godly work ethic, the, the first principle of it is it demonstrates the gospel. With un, unbelieving bosses, it would demonstrate the gospel by drawing positive attention to the gospel. Now, he says here, so that the name of God, notice he says that in verse one, so that the, the name of God would, be, would still have all honor. The name of God. When we talk about the name of God, we don't just mean Yahweh or Jehovah or even Jesus. We talk about the name of God. It means his authority and his character. That's what the idea of name is in the scriptures. 
So the idea here is that we are showing how we work. We're demonstrating the, the honorable character of God, the worthiness of God, by working in a way that says God's authority is worth submitting to. This is the secret to all submission. The secret to all submission for a Christian is not what kind of a great boss you have. It's what kind of a great God you have. And also, the scripture says this in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily, notice, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this exhortation is not saying, don't worry about uh, if your boss treats you badly or uh, don't, don't worry about if your boss doesn't pay you what he's, he's promised to pay you. No, we should confront those injustices because that's, that's a good thing to do. But the point is, that by itself doesn't motivate us to work well. What motivates us is that we belong to the Lord and he's promising one day we're going to be rewarded for how we work. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that, that what you do vocationally has an eternal impact? That, that you are going to be rewarded for that. You might think, oh yeah, okay, that works for you, John. You do all the churchy stuff. No, it works for you. Whether you're fixing cars or fixing broken legs or studying so that you can get ready to do more things, whatever your vocation is, whatever you spend your time doing, affects eternity. You carry with you into eternity if you do it as unto the Lord. He also says that we're to do this in a way that the teaching, he says, is not reviled. Now, Paul says a similar thing to Titus. He wrote Titus, a letter to Titus like he wrote to Timothy around the same time, but he says it a little bit more positively in Titus. Listen to this. He says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In the same way that God's authority is worthy to be submitted to, God's gospel is worthy to be adorned. We want to make the gospel look good by how we work. We want it to be even more attractive by how we work. This is the first part of a godly work ethic. It's demonstrating the goodness of the gospel. And what about if you have believing bosses? Here's what it says in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must, be, must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believing and beloved. In other words, not only are we drawing positive attention to the gospel for unbelieving bosses, but we want to exemplify gospel love to our believing bosses. We want to show what that looks like. Remember, this love we're talking about here, this gospel love, it's not, it's, it's not determined by how much other people love us, but by how much God loves us. This applies, of course, to all relationships, but Paul's applying it here to work. Maybe you have a teacher that professes to be a Christian, but they're always busting your chops. And you're thinking, they seem a bit harsh. And you want to push back, and you don't want to submit to the workload that they put on you. And God's saying, no, that's not gospel love. Or maybe you have a boss that seems to expect you to really 
always set an example of working hard and you feel like it just feels a bit unfair. He's supposed to be a Christian. He should be more compassionate of you. Well, no, no. If you're going to demonstrate the gospel at work, you've you got to show gospel love. You should say, wait a second, they're benefiting from this. The point is simple. How we work, the first aspect of having a godly work ethic is wanting to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus. So, I want to read to you guys, it's got a fairly long section from Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus said, that that I think underscores this. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rains on the just and the unjust. For you love those who, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in what way? In love. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to empower you for. This is the supernatural power the Holy Spirit wants to give you is so that you can live this way even at work. Now this is hard. This takes intentionality and prayer, but it also takes us remembering how much we're loved. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So let's talk about this. Let's talk this through. In your, in your small groups you're in right now, uh, go ahead and talk about these, these things. They'll be on the screen. How many jobs have you had so far? Have you seen a difference between how Christians and non-Christians work in, the, in those spheres? And why do you think that is? In other words, if, they, if you haven't seen a difference, uh, why not? If you have seen a difference, why so? Okay, go ahead and talk about those things in your groups. So I'm going to give you about five minutes. Go ahead and do that right now. All right, bringing it back. So, a godly work ethic, is it demonstrates the gospel. That's its first priority. Now, we're going to see in these next verses, basically really from verse 3 to the end of the chapter, Paul's actually dealing with the wrong attitudes and the wrong motivations that false teachers have. But he's dealing with these as they affect us as God's people, as they can influence us in the wrong way as God's people. And so I want to show really, really quickly in these next few verses the fact that false teachers will resist a godly work ethic. This is one of the ways we can see false teachers. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as a false teacher who works hard. There are definitely false teachers who work hard, I'm sure. But, but this is one of the indicators that, that brings this here. Because, well, we'll see why. Look at verse 3. Uh, Paul writes, well, actually, the end of verse 2, Paul says, teach and urge these things. And then in verse 3, he says, If anyone uh, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, now when he says this phrase, that that, uh, he's uh, contradicting the, the teaching that accords to godliness, 
He's talking about this truth that when what Jesus taught, what Jesus exemplified, and what Jesus did for us was not just say, here's some stuff to believe in. Here's this kind of, these lists of important truths that you're supposed to believe in. That was there, but it was way more than that. Jesus did something for us that is meant to transform our lives in every single part. And him living the perfect life, dying the perfect death, being raised to life the third day, just as he predicted, ascending to heaven, sending his spirit, he did all that as part of the Father's plan to see us changed so we can enjoy him forever. But the false teachers don't talk about that. The false teachers don't talk about this idea that we need to be transformed. That this is why Christ died for us, so that we could be changed from the inside out. In fact, interesting, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he brings up this issue and how it shows itself up in the church, talking about that, that in these last days you'll see people, literally believers, who will begin to not live as all, at all as if they're Christians. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Now remember, these are people who profess to be Christians. Listen. Lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Oh, I go to church. I say amen. I lift my hands. I tithe. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoids his people. Denying its power to do what? To change us. You see, as we are devoted to God through Christ, God, we commit ourselves to you. That's what godliness is. I'm devoted to you, Lord, above all things because you have given me all things in Christ. As we devote ourselves to God, what happens? God changes us from the inside out. And false teachers deny this. They they, they downplay the need for us to be transformed. Now, there can be false teachers, of course, and this is another Bible study we won't get into today. There can be false teachers that only focus on, you need to change, you need to change, you need to change. And they don't ever give you the gospel, the means by which we are changed. That's bad, too. But here, Paul is talking about those who want to de-emphasize Christ's power to change us. Because Christ is able and wanting to change how we work. But also look at verse 4 again, the second part of verse 4 now, after he says that they're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. He says, he, that is his false teacher, has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, if there's ever a verse that that undermines the whole prosperity gospel that you see on religious television, it's this verse. See, what happens is false teachers want to overemphasize controversial issues. Why? Because that tickles people's ears and people send them money for it. I don't know if you've ever noticed how a lot of these 
sort of websites or YouTube pages that have the most goofiest, silliest, just weirdest conspiracy theories have thousands upon thousands of views? Have you noticed that? Why? Because that stuff's attractive. They, they, they say extreme things because it brings in viewers, and bringing in viewers means bringing in revenue. They see this fake godliness or this appearance of godliness as a means of gain. This is serious. It's especially serious uh, what was going on in Paul's day when Paul writes this. There were those who were thinking, I don't really have to work because I'm studying scripture all day. And uh, as I study scripture, we're not talking about guys who are called like we saw in 1 Timothy 5. We're not talking about guys who are appointed as teaching elders who should be uh, taking care of so they can focus on equipping. Them. These are self-promoted uh, people. People have put themselves uh, you know, in this place. The church hasn't put them there. They've put themselves there. And they put themselves there and think, I don't have to work. And then what happens? They show up at church and go, oh, I, oh I'd like to, to do this thing or that thing. I just don't have the money. I'm just praying God would provide for me, even though they're unwilling to work. And, and Paul says that's ridiculous. They use controversy instead of hard work to actually gain, to actually have the provision that they need. Paul's saying that's bogus. A famous uh, 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, first megachurch in England in the 1900s, uh, uh, 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this, there is no disease in the world worse than laziness. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now this is important because this idea that we should work hard, even if our bosses are less than perfect, even if our bosses profess to be Christ and they're less than perfect, working hard is what God calls us to do as a priority to demonstrate the gospel. We have to get this through our heads. Now, for those of you who, who might be like me or might be listening to this later and be like me, your problem is not that you work too hard, or you don't work hard enough. Your problem is that sometimes you work hard or you work for the wrong motivations. And this is what Paul brings up next. Because when it comes to a godly work ethic, there are snares that we can fall into. In fact, a godly work ethic can become a snare. When you learn to work hard because you want to be a follower of Jesus, or maybe you grew up in a, in a household where you saw hard work modeled and you want to follow that ethic, there are snares that can actually undermine what God wants to do through work. So let's see what those three snares are in these last few verses from 6 to 10. Paul says, in, in contrast to, to what the false teachers would say, as godliness is a way to get gain, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. Contentment. Being at peace with your current situation. That's contentment. I have to confess, I'm not very content in the age of COVID. I've been so convicted because I, 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 I I'm, my kids would probably say I complain all the time, but I, don't real, I didn't realize how much I complained until recently I was studying and reading in, in one of my courses about the sin of complaining. That we, we don't really see it as, as sin. We talk about it, we joke about complaining, but we do complain a lot. I, at least, complain a lot. And it's bad. What is it? Why is it bad? Because it shows I'm not believing that God is as good as he said he is and still sovereign and has me in my current situation 
for my good and for his glory. That includes a financial situation. Paul's saying godliness with contentment is great gain. Now this is important because we see, we see this as a principle in Scripture that we're not very good at. Listen to this prayer of a guy named Agur in the book of Proverbs chapter 30. Here's what Agur prays. He says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Now, now, I know that probably many of you here, probably most of you here, would not ever consider yourself to be rich. But you need to understand you're still in the top 10% of the whole population of the, of the planet. E- even if you're, if you're only on benefits, you have no job right now, and you just feel so strapped, you're still in a better place than 90% of the population on this planet. Now, now what, what Paul's saying here is, there's the, or I'm sorry, what, what Agar is praying in Proverbs is, he, he, he knows firsthand the temptation of, man, if I'm doing well, I forget about God. This is what God said to his people in the book of Deuteronomy. Look, I'm going to bless you, you're going to do really well, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to forget about me. I'm going to have to chase you and bring you back to me. Or you get to where you're feeling so desperate. I mean, we can feel desperate enough to want to steal, even to steal. It's no excuse for theft, but we can feel that way. So what Edgar is praying is saying, God, bring me to this place where I'm content with your provision and provide enough for me to be content. So how much is enough? This is what we have to let God set for us. You see, a godly work ethic becomes a snare when we don't let God set our standard of living. We don't let God determine what we have or don't have, what we should enjoy or shouldn't enjoy. Now, Paul talked about this as a minister of the gospel, someone who, who basically would not charge for his work of the gospel, but then was dependent upon uh, churches to support him so he could continue to do the gospel, as well as having a job in the evenings, making tents, fixing tents. Paul knew what it was like to struggle between these two places. I, I have a lot, I have a little. And here's what he said. He said, not that I'm speaking in need of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I have, uh, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know what the secret is? I trust Jesus. Lord, you're in control. This is where I'm at. Now, I want you to think about this, because when I'm talking about letting God set your standard of living, I don't mean letting God meet the standard you've set. That's a different thing. I'm talking about saying, God, what should we actually pursue? What should we be happy with or not happy with? Can I confess more sin to you guys? I've really struggled. I might have even shared this last week. I don't know. But I've really struggled since I've lived in England on the fact that we don't own our own home. Because we did own our own home when we lived in California. We only had, we lived in the house for four and a half years, but we loved this house. We fixed up this little house. A couple of our kids were born in this little house. And we just, man, we just loved this home. And then we sold the house. We actually made some money on the house. And then we moved to London. Have you ever lived in London? Oh, my goodness. It's so expensive. And so basically, we saw all that money from the house go like this. So by the time we moved to Norwich, it was all gone. We'd never been able to gain enough money again and save to be able to buy a house. And I've been frustrated with this. I've told God, isn't it better stewardship, God, if I pay a house payment, my own house payment, instead of somebody else's? Isn't that the better way to go? Maybe it is. 
But God hasn't provided for that for me. I've been asking God, meet the standard of living. I want to own my own home. And God has said over and over again, through, through circumstances, no. Can I be content in this? Can I say, God, it's okay if I never own a home? It's okay. But the point is, we needed to say, God, what would you have us do? How would you have us live? This is important because I think this really speaks into the goals that we set for our lives. Our goals are usually set around work, and we set those goals around work by what, how comfortable we want to be financially. Do you know anybody who's decided, God, I, I want to ha- make the most money I can possibly make so I can give it all away? Do you know anybody like that? Because that's closer to the gospel than how most of us deal with this stuff. Now, we need to let God set our standard of living. God, how do you want me to be? And you know, this even includes our giving. I, I like to give. I really do. And there's been a, just a few times when I haven't been able to give what I want to give, and it drives me crazy. But you know why it drives me crazy? In part, because I want people to think I'm great. I want to feel good about myself. Look how generous I am. But I can only give what God provides me for me to give. The, the point is, we, this godly work can, can become a snare because we can overwork to be rich, even if it's rich to give money away. We can overwork because we're not saying, God, what's the standard you would have us set? That's one thing. Paul also says, for you brought nothing into the world, verse 7, and we can take, we, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing, uh, can, cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now Paul's again talking about himself and his team. They live that a very, in a very humble way. But the point that he's making here, especially in verse 7, is a, is a similar point that Jesus made, which is that we, can, we should not define our lives by the things we possess. This is when a godly work ethic could become a snare. We can work hard, people respond to us, they pay us well, and what happens? We start buying things and thinking this is what life's about. But Jesus said, listen, Jesus said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In between there, Jesus told a parable of a rich man who had made so much money that he said, oh, look at me, I've done so well, I'm going to build a bigger barn to hold all the stuff that I have. And then guess what happens? He builds this barn, he's about to take his ease. And Jesus says, you fool, because today your life will be required of you. He dies. It's amazing how little we think of eternity. Do you know the most important thing you possess is a relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ. Nothing else is nearly as important as that. Can you see how when you work hard and people pat you on the back for how hard you work, that that can turn into where you think, you know, I deserve to have this thing. And then we keep that thing as a almost as a trophy of what we've earned. As opposed to recognizing, God, everything I have is a gift from you, and the greatest thing you've given me is yourself. Therefore, I want to work as unto you, and I want to say, Lord, I want to be content with the things we're meant to have. This is hard. But this is what God calls us to. So godly work ethic becomes a snare when we don't let God set our standard of living, when we define our lives by the things we possess, 
And lastly, when we love money more than God, look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Wandered away from the faith. What faith? The faith that believes that Jesus came to save us and change us from the inside out. Transformation stops because we're too focused on how I can better myself, how I can gain more. And what is that? It's us loving money. Now, loving money just doesn't, doesn't mean just loving stuff. In fact, I want to make sure you, you, you get this. It says, for those who desire to be rich. It didn't say those who are rich. The issue is never how much you have. It's about what you do with it. It's always about what you do with it. Remember, we're letting God set our standard of living. And here's the truth. There's always going to be some believers that have a higher standard of living than others. It's, it's a fact. It's going to be the fact. There are certain jobs that get paid more than others. They're probably going to have a higher standard of living. It's just a fact. It's the way it is. It's the way it was in the first century with the first Christians. It's the way it was after. The only exception has been in the very, very first uh, beginning of the church, when the, first, the church first started in Acts chapter 2, they put all their money into one, one pile and provided because most of these thousands of people who had become Christians had come from other countries in for the Jewish feast and then heard about Jesus. God saved all these thousands of people and they thought, great, this Jesus is going to come back soon. Let's just stay here. Oh, we can't afford to stay here. We can't if we all put our money together. So they do. Guess what happens? A couple years pass down the road. Everybody's broke and they're in famine. And the other churches are having to send money to Jerusalem to keep them going. That's why they didn't keep that practice up. It didn't work. Yeah, the heart was right, but it didn't work. The point is this. God calls us to say, look, Lord, I don't want my desire to be rich. So I've never played the lottery. Well, that's not true. I played once when I turned 18. I wasn't a Christian yet. I went and bought a lottery ticket. I lost. Okay, this is what happens. But my dad used to play the lottery all the time. He used to, every week, he took like, like $5. He bought five lottery tickets. And if, if any of those lottery tickets won any bit of cash that he got back, Whatever cash he could get back immediately, he bought that many more lottery tickets. So if it was 20 or 50 or whatever, that didn't happen very often, but when it did, it did. His whole plan was, I have nothing, I, I won't leave my kids anything, but if I win the lottery, then my four boys will have something. And so I have to confess, another confession for me, I used to pray, God, please let my dad win the lottery. I can't justify playing the lottery, but if he wins, I promise I'll tithe. I'll use it for your glory, Lord. I will sing your praises as I sit outside my beach house surfing. This is what can happen to us. It's not that I had riches, but I desired to be rich. I still do sometimes. That's a snare. It's a trap. It actually can take us away from the faith. That's why he says it's the love of money, not money. Money isn't the root of all evil. That's a misquote. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. You know what the root of all evil is? The root of all evil is godlessness. It's, it's either ignoring or counterfeiting who God is. That's Romans chapter 1. That's the root of all evil. It's our hearts. This is why Jesus had to die so we could be changed. 
See, the thing is, is that money is a good tool, but it's not a good God. Only the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is a good God. And when we love money more than God, man, that becomes a snare, and it can become a snare unto damnation. Jesus said so clearly, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But we try, but we can't. Guys, listen, this is bigger, listen, this is bigger than simply, oh, make sure you give your first 10% to the work of God. This is bigger than that. It's a good thing to do, but it's much bigger than that. This is about us saying, God, you've given me this job so I can draw positive attention to the gospel. So I can be a blessing to both believers and unbelievers so I can demonstrate your love. You've given me this job, Lord, so that I can resist the lie of these false teachers that says, hey, I should try to take my ease. I should have my best life now. No, I want to work hard because it blesses other people. You've given me this job so so that I could know you better and show you better. And I can't do that if I fall into one of these snares. Let me ask you a really simple question. Should this clear work ethic that the scripture is pointing out here, suggest, should, should this change the way you work? Now I know some of you, especially those who might be watching this, might be in a place where you don't have any work. And we're going to pray for you this afternoon that God provides for you that work. And if anyone's watching this or if you guys are here listening to this and you need help financially, physically, please tell us. You can send me an email or a text. You can just, if, if, you, if you wanted to stay anonymous, we want to help. We really do want to help. We don't want anybody uh, to, to, to go without. We don't want anybody to be in a place where they can't provide their basic needs, food and clothing. But for most of us who are still blessed to have jobs, we need to be thinking, Lord, do I work for you? So here's what we're going to do. In our groups, again, we're going to discuss these things. We're going to end with some prayer after we discuss these things. I'm going to give you another five, maybe ten minutes, depending on how late it is, maybe five minutes or so. And here's what I want you to discuss. I want you to, to, to be honest, to be honest about this. Do you struggle more with laziness or the snares of a good work ethic that we just talked about. And if it's laziness, why do you think that is? And if it's snares, which one seems to get you most? I suspect most of us will say we kind of struggle with both. But then also, I want you to take the time to remember that where we have all failed to work as we ought, that the work of Jesus remains sufficient. What Jesus did is enough. Yes, we've sinned by having a bad work ethic or working hard for the wrong reasons, but Jesus died for those sins. And he cleanses from all unrighteousness. So let's take time to also thank him for his work for us and ask him to empower us to work for him. All right? So in your groups, go ahead and do that. I'm going to give you about five, maybe ten minutes, and then I'll close this in prayer. Go ahead. All right, 
So I'm going to close in prayer right now, and then uh, we'll go from there. Father, thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We pray for those who are watching it afterwards, Lord, that it would still be a blessing to them. Uh, we trust you for the wisdom to get these kinds of things sorted. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us no matter what happens to us. Um, yeah, thank you so much for Jesus. Amen. All right, God bless you guys.